0: Thank you so much, Joanne. I appreciate that wonderful piece of music. Take your Bible, turn to First Kings chapter 15. It's a, so such a great truth as we start off this message, coming off that special, that um, God is strong, and we are weak, and it's good that He is strong. It is good that He is strong. You know, this is an election year, if you didn't know that already. <laughs> And uh, I think a lot of people think that the most important forces in our world are at the top of the ticket. You know, it's the, it's the people making all the decisions. They're the important people. Um, but, you know, even the important people of this world, the people who are at the top, so to speak, people who are in charge of the world's nations, those people must submit to the ultimate king. And, uh, you know, they all are men and women. I, I was uh, reading the news recently, even this past week, I, the King of England, I don't know if you saw this, King of England um, he, he discovered he has cancer. And um, I, I pray for him. I pray that he knows the Lord. I don't know if he's a, a born-again believer. I don't know if he has trusted Christ as his Savior. I, I hope that He has. But it's a reminder that if he has not uh, done that, he, he too will face punishment for his sins. It does not matter if he is the head of the Church of England. Uh, he must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he must stand before the King of Kings. And he will stand just as you stand and just as I stand before the King of Kings. We're in the book of Kings, First Kings 15. It tells the story of men who ruled Both Judah and Israel, really. First Kings and into Second Kings, we're going to see the 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 book. You know, we call it Kings because it lists the kings. It talks about the kings, really, from Solomon on. We focus on the divided monarchy here. From after Solomon's death, we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel. These even they come at war with each other from time to time. And this book is not just about human kings. This is not just a dry history book that tells stories about kings. Like, that is not the point of First and Second Kings. In fact, the point he's making, the point that this book is making is, is not just to give us a simple history lesson, but to explain why these nations were swept away into exile, why God would allow such judgment to fall on a nation like Israel, His chosen people, And what we see time and time again is the failure of human leadership to lead people in the right way. In fact, the main king of this book is the Lord himself. He is the king of kings, and we'll see that again uh, today. So in this sermon today, every point that you'll notice on your outline, which, by the way, if you don't have an outline, it's inside your uh, bulletin. Hopefully you can turn there and follow along. It will help you keep track of where we are in the message. Every point is about what God does. It's about God. So even when the world around us is falling apart, when there are people who are very powerful, who are doing bad things, or not doing what they should be doing, God is the King of kings, and we need to remember that and submit to Him. What we see here is that our Lord, the King of kings, even those in great power are responsible to Him. Father, we come to You asking You for blessing on this message today. I pray that You would open up our hearts to where we need to change. Lord, we thank You that You are indeed the King of kings, and we rest in You. We rest and trust in You, and our anxieties and our fears and our our unsettledness needs to go away because You are the great King, and and the great King who not only is powerful but good. And so we rest in You, we trust in You, and we pray that this message today would challenge us to, to do just that. I pray all Your blessings on the time we have, the rest of the time we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing I want you to notice in this passage as we see the King of Kings is the title of this uh, this sermon, 1 Kings chapter 15. Let's look at the first few verses and we'll see, um, we'll just, we'll start right off the top. It says, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the granddaughter of Abishalam, and he walked in the sins of his father Which he had done before him, his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chroniclers of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So, Jeroboam, so Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. You know, what they often, what we notice about this passage, I, I wanted to point out is that God shows mercy. That God shows mercy. Mercy is often described as God not giving us what we deserve, God withholding what we deserve, God's mercy. God, God's mercy on display here to David and his family because we see this in black and white as Abijam has many failures. We see Abijam's failures right off the top. He's called Abijah, by the way, in 2 Chronicles, and here he's called Abijam because uh, Abijah means my, God, my father is the Lord or uh, God is my father. And, and here, the, 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 uh, the writer here, 1 Kings, makes it another alternate way of reading this. His name is Abijam, which, which takes away that, so it's making the point that he was not one who walked with God as his father. He did not live that way. He was a, he was a, a bad king of Judah. In fact, he had a very short reign. Look at the first two verses. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, uh, he reigned, verse 2, three years in Jerusalem. Three short years did he reign. And how was his reign assessed? What we find in the book of Kings is that the kings are, are given to us and then there's an assessment from God over how they were, uh, how they reigned, whether they did a good job or a bad job. Look at verse 3. He walked in the sins of his father. This, this means that his, he was, he was uh, engaged in idolatry it says his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. So there's two parts of this. There was a inner and outward uh, behavior. His outward behavior was wrong. His inward behavior was wrong. He was a bad king. He failed to follow David's, David's example, his father David. He was not loyal. The word loyal there is associated with the word peace. It has this idea of wholeness. He was not at peace with God. He was not one with God. He was not complete with God. He was not wholeheartedly pursuing God. He had, a, he had a divided heart. So, he was a very bad king, Abijam. But what we notice is, is that although Abijam had failures, God has faithfulness. Look at verse 4. It says, "Nevertheless." For David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. I, I, notice what he's saying, that God's promise to David that I will not extinguish your lamp. That's a symbolic way of saying I will not remove your line or your kingdom from the city of Jerusalem. I will not remove you from Judah. I, will not, I would leave you with a lamp, he says. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses that talk about this. Uh, in, in, in 2 Samuel 21, we have this story happening here. He's speaking here. Uh, to David he says, "Then the men of David swore to him, saying, "You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Don't, don't go out to battle. we don't want you to die, and the lamp of Israel be quenched. There is that image of the lamp. We see it also in First Kings 11, where we started this whole sermon series, where God makes this promise. He says that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. God made a promise that the Judah kingdom would be ruled by David's family. And the reason God had done this is because he's a faithful God, and he had chosen to put his presence there. He put his name there in Jerusalem. But notice back in our text, uh, 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5, that, that for David's sake, the Lord gave him this lamp in Jerusalem. God does this because he is a faithful, faithful God. We, we do not have to worry about God's faithfulness. God will always be faithful. David was not always faithful himself. We have the example here of Uriah the Hittite. We know the story of Bathsheba, where David sinned against Bathsheba and killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. But how was David's response when confronted with his sin? He humbled himself and repented. He had a humble, repentant heart. And because of this, God was one who God was faithful to him. I have another verse for you here that I want to point your attention to, which is Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is so faithful and so merciful to us. We'll fail, but God is faithful and merciful. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. We find one more section in this opening uh, part of the story, and that is not only Abijam's failures and God's faithfulness, but man's man's conflict. As we finish out Abijam's reign, the writer of 1 Kings notes how there was conflict all the days of his reign. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, verse 6. All the days of his life. And then he rested with his fathers. They buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. I want to point out two main things as we conclude this first point. The first is this one person can have an enormous impact on a family. Think about what David's impact was for his family that his faithfulness to the Lord meant that his sons who disobeyed God, God still showed mercy to his family. One person can break the chain of sin in a family. One person can make a huge impact. If you come from a family that you look back on the line of your family and you say, we are a bunch of misfits, we are a bunch of losers, we're a bunch of people who have hated God or have done all crazy things, you realize that it takes one person to break that chain. It takes one person to make a huge difference, and God blesses people who make a difference in their families. You will have an impact not only on your family, but on your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren if you do what God calls you to do. You don't know what that impact will be, but God tells us and shows us examples over and over again. There is a generational impact that will happen, that can happen, that God might bless when people are faithful to Him, so one person can have a huge impact. The second part, of this I wanted to make a point of, is that God shows mercy to people, so we should be merciful to people. God is a merciful person. God is merciful. In fact, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, Jesus says, therefore, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. God is a merciful God. Why are we so short with each other? God shows great mercy and great kindness here. We also should show mercy, but God also is one who honors purity. God shows mercy and he honors purity. Yes, it's true that God shows mercy to undeserving people. He shows mercy to those, even those who may not be obedient to him, but God honors those who seek to obey him. God values purity. That is removing the defiling influences of our lives. Purity is important. There should be a commitment to purity among all believers. This is a vital step for the Christian. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must commit yourself to living a pure life. That means you rid yourself of the things that would defile you or cause problems. We see this as the, as the, uh, as the story goes on in verse 9. In the, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah, and he reigned how many years? Are you reading? He, re- he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, his grandmother's name was Makah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. Notice that God honors purity with longevity here. This is similar to what is promised or what is uh, that, that uh, the principles given to us in Ephesians, that, that you may live long on the earth There is a principle here, it's not always the case, but it's the principle that God often honors purity with longevity. Notice how the contrast here between Abijam, who reigned only three years, Asa would reign 41 years. God blessed the nation with a ruler who who prioritized purity. We'll see that in just a moment. Notice that God honors those who do the hard things. Look at all the hard things He has to do. Here's the assessment of Asa beginning in verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Wow. We have somebody doing something right. It almost makes you want to stand up and applaud, you know. All right. Good job, King Asa. He did what was right. What did he do that was so right? What was it that he honed in on that made the, that, the, the that, that shows us here his, his identification with David that says, yes, this was like David. Look at verse 12. And he, this is explaining what he did, and he banished the perverted persons from the land. He removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He removed Maka's grandmother from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. Notice the repetition. If you want to have pencil or pen, you want to circle this. The repetitions of the word banished and removed. You see this. This is The, the idea of purity is to take away that which is defiling, he goes and he banishes the prostitutes, the perverted persons. This is the, uh, a word that means the, the probably refers to cult prostitutes who would gather at these shrines and engage in all kinds of terrible immoral behaviors at these, cult thing, at these cult shrines as part of their form of worship. And so this was very popular in Canaan, very popular among pagan cultures. Sexual immorality and paganism goes hand in hand. We see it today, don't we? So we see here with the, the, the perverted persons, this is probably men, but also could be women involved in this. It's a plural, but it's a, a masculine plural. So some people say it's the women and the men, but either way, the perverted persons. some of your translations might say male cult prostitutes, whatever the case, he banished these from the land. He said, you're gone. You cannot be here. Your presence creates a defilement. Your activity is defiling to the land. Your, your behavior cannot be here. Secondly, notice that, that he, um, he removed the idols his father had made. Idols are images. So his father had created images, and that is against the law of God. God says, you shall not make any graven images. But his father had made graven images. So he goes in and he cuts down what his father had made. Now talk about doing hard things. It's hard to go and remove something your father had established as king. He goes and he says it doesn't matter what dad did we're changing it we're doing the right thing we are going to remove the idols that are here that's hard it's hard to stand up to a culture all around you the entire it's hard for us to even imagine this but all around him the entire Canaanite culture was consumed with idolatry the entire Jewish culture was consumed with idolatry so much so that unless you were actively putting this down unless you were cutting it out unless you were removing it spread like cancer through the culture and so he removed it he said you have to take this out he recognized that his fathers having established something doesn't mean it had to stay he also evaluated it by the law of god he said this is wrong it is wicked therefore we will remove it but there was more look at verse 13 he removed his grandmother from being queen mother. Now, you think that you're dealing with your dad is hard? Can you imagine dealing with grandma? <laughs> now, there's a textual thing here where some of your translations might say mother. There's a, the word mother and grandmother often interchanges. Most likely, this is referring to his grandmother, not his, the one who gave him birth, but his, his grandmother. And this woman was likely an Ammonite. She comes as part of the family and is established as a queen mother, which is like a role, it's a specific role in the palace. She has authority. She has some position. It's mostly just uh, ceremonial from what we understand. But, But what does he do he says, you have violated God's law. What did she do first? Let's look at that. It says, because she made an obscene image of Asherah. Now, we talked about Asherah last week a little bit. But Asherah poles were like a, a basically like a totem pole kind of a thing. It was an image. It was a, it was a tall wooden pole, a, 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 a stylized tree that symbolized a feminine deity. It symbolized a feminine sexualized deity. We see these all throughout the land of, of um of Canaan. And so she was doing what she wanted to do, and she's, she's setting up this Asherah pole, this, this obscene Asherah pole. And what does he do? He says, no, 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 you're not going to do this. I'm not going to allow you to do this. I'm going to remove you from your position. I'm going to cut down this Asherah pole, and I'm going to burn it. But he's not just going to burn it out in the backyard. Because if you burned it in a place like that, you could still possibly, you know, worship that spot. Yeah, I'm going to burn it. Notice where he burns it. Where does he burn it? near the Kidron Brook, okay, near a river, near a little stream. So, he goes down to where the water is flowing. He burns it into the water, puts it into the water, so the water carries it away, and it's gone, and it's completely out of the land. He says, I'm not going to give you any opportunities to worship this image. This is some hard stuff. He's standing up to his own family, He's standing up to his own family and saying, we will not worship these false gods. We will not engage in these things. And God honors those who do hard things. It's always easier to go along. It's always easier to go along than to demand purity. Demanding purity is hard. We see this over and over again in established churches even in our country, and throughout it's often noted that it's, why is it that those who are impure, those who do not have pure doctrine, uh, one of my professors once said this, he said, it's amazing, you know, you know that there used to be, like Princeton University used to be a God-honoring seminary, did you know that? It used to be. There are people there who preach the gospel, but why, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened is that, it's that people uh, got in who did not believe the truth, and it became impure, and the righteous people said, rather, well, the righteous people probably didn't deal with it like they should have. What they ended up having to do was leave. Because at some point, this perversion, these kinds of things will contaminate, and you can't take it anymore. You have to get out. We need to deal with this. We need to deal with impurities before they get to that place. God honors those who do hard things. Do the hard thing while it's still possible. And then God honors those with loyal hearts. Look at the rest of this uh, passage, verse 14 and 15. There is one issue in which he did not obey, and that's in verse 14, but the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. There's a lot of questions about why it is he did not remove the, uh, the high places, we're not really sure it's possible there were so many hilltop high country places that he just decided it wasn't worth his time or that he was just not fully committed in that way. We're not 100% sure why, but the Bible is clear to tell us that this was not a heart issue because his heart was fully aligned with God. He, he wanted to get rid of everything, but he wasn't able for whatever reason. Maybe he didn't know about them all. Maybe he wasn't, it wasn't able for him to do it. Whatever the case, for some reason, he was not able to get rid of all the high places, but his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days, and God honors that. His loyalty was important. He was, had a complete heart. He only followed God. In fact, it shows he followed God so much. Look at verse 15. He even made sacrifices or offerings to God, bringing offerings into the house of the Lord. He brought into the house of the Lord all the things which his father had dedicated, the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. He made sure there was gold there. He filled the coffers. A couple quick points of application. The first is that the only way to handle idolatry is to destroy it, to run away from it. The Bible says that we must we must reject, we must reject idolatry completely. We cannot uh, notice the repetition, as I mentioned, of remove or banish. You can't play around with this stuff, you must deal with it directly. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it tells us this: no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also do what? Make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's the next verse? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, that's the context here. He's like, the temptations you're going to face. Run away from that stuff. Don't be be playing around with those things. The second thing I wanted to point out is that when righteous people are in leadership, God honors that and blesses that. When the righteous are in authority, Proverbs 29.2, the people rejoice. When the wicked man rules the people groan. We are in a really amazing place in, in the world history when you think about the fact that we can elect our own government. We don't have to be forced upon by a king. The, the nation of Israel had no such privilege. And so, I beg of you, let's make sure that we vote for people and let's elect people who honor the Lord. Number three, God brings Testing. We see here that, that God honors loyalty, and God honors purity, and God brings testing. I want you to notice the weakness of Asa as he finds uh, himself at war with Baasha. Let's so read verse 16. Now, there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he, might not, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now, I want you to notice, as we see this, the first thing is that there's pressure on Ramah. So he builds up Rama, a military outpost, and I have to make a confession. We put out our, uh, our Sunday school material last week with a map on it that I put the wrong Rama on it. So I'm so sorry if I confused you as you were looking, Where? how in the world is this putting pressure on Jerusalem, Rama's way up in, in the north? Okay, I, I hit the wrong button on my computer when I typed in Rama, so I apologize for that. And one of you uh, sharp, sharp-eyed people caught it, and we actually issued corrections this morning if you were there and you picked up a... A piece of paper. It's got it in the correct spot. But what you'll notice about Ramah, I actually, um, I'll have a map in a few moments, but Ramah was right outside Jerusalem, about five miles. And what we have here is Baasha, king of Israel, is putting pressure on Jerusalem. He's actually putting pressure on them by building up Ramah as a military outpost really close to where Jerusalem was. He is encroaching on Judah. He's pushing down south. And God allows this testing. Even when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, God allows testing. And so there's pressure here on Ram. And the second thing we see is there are some political maneuvers that take place with Asa. Look at verse 18. How does he respond to this testing? It says, Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord, in the treasuries of the king's house, and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And king Asa sent them, his servants, to ben the son of Tab- uh, Tab- um, Tab- I'm sorry, Tabramon, Tabramon, the son of Hazion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that we will, he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the king of Israel. I'm sorry, against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Chinneroth. In all the land of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Terza. Let's look at these political maneuvers. This can get confusing if you don't know the geography of the region. So here's your map. What you'll notice is that um, that what ASA did, down in Jerusalem, so he's on the bottom of your screen in Jerusalem. And there is Ramah right above that. You see Mizpah and Geba, which are next to each other. And slightly north of that is Ramah. That is where they were uh, building up this military outpost. Israel was just across the border into Judah, building up this outpost, pushing their borders south. And so what does Asa do? He takes the money that was left in the treasury of the temple... And he sends it, and this is whatever that Shishak, king of Egypt, had, had left behind, basically. And he sends it north to Aram, or to Syria, to Ben-Hadad, who lives in Damascus, up north. And he tells, he tells the king up there, he says, I want you to disregard your treaty with the northern kingdom of Israel, and I want you to become my friend, and I want you to attack them up north. And so what he does is, is, here we are in Jerusalem, this is the cities that were attacked. He says, I want you to go from Damascus and attack these places. And so what Ben-Hadad does is he attacks the northern cities. And in attacking those northern cities, it draws fire away from the south. And it creates an issue where, where all of their forces are being tested in the north. So what does the king of Israel do? He sends his troops northward and abandons the place of Ramah in order to shore up his defenses up north. Are you following the political maneuvering so far? You see it? There's pressure on the south. They buy off somebody in the north to put pressure on the north to pull the troops up so that they can then regain their position in the south. This, tr- this typical... Um, Ancient military strategy stuff. There's your education for it, right? Isn't that neat? That's cool. All right. So that's what happened. This is a political maneuvering. But the question is, was he right to do that? What should he have done? How could he have handled this? This seems like he, 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 he probably should have done something else. In fact, I, I put here from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, there's another, there's a parallel description of this. I want to read this. I want to show you what the chronicler says. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 7 at that time, Hanai, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians in the Libam not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand? For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly, therefore, from now on you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer, put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. The truth is, rather than relying on God and seeking God's way of dealing with this problem, Asa relied on his own thinking and his political maneuvering. And it worked in the short term. It worked in the short term, but in the long term it did not succeed and bringing him peace, we saw the pressure, we saw the political maneuvering, and we also see his final days here as we close out this ver- this uh, section, verse twenty-two. King Asa made a proclamation through all of Judah; none were exempted. They took away the stones in the timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might, all he did, all the cities—are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers. He was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Asa's rule ends with a whimper. He was forced to gather forced laborers. If you go back to our map here, if you look back on the bottom there, he took all the timber from Ramah, and he built up his own forts, but he had to do it with forced labor. He said, no one's exempted. You must come and do this. He was, he was, uh, he was oh, at the end of his life, was not strong. We see this even at the end of the life, he had disease in his feet. He was unable to move. There's a sense of disappointment as we close out Asa's life. There's a sense of disappointment, a, a disappointment and loss and sadness. There's so much potential, but in the end, there's loss. God brings testing, and we don't always pass His tests. But Always God keeps His word. Look at the last passage here as we'll conclude this morning looking at 1 Kings 15. Let's look at verse 25. We see first Nadab's failure. Nadab is no better than his father. He continues the sin which led Israel into trouble. We're back into the northern kingdom. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam, sin was the golden calf that he set up in Dan and Bethel. He continued here by Nadab. It doesn't stop the slide of sin. Remember the prophecy that God had given. God had given this prophecy in uh, chapter 14. He said, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among my people, made you ruler over my people Israel, tore the kingdom away from the house of David, gave it to you, And yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do what was right in my eyes. Okay, what's the punishment? He says, but you have done more evil than all who were before you. You have gone and made yourself other gods and molded images and provoked me to anger, have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. He'll cut off every male, and he says, everything will be taken away. It'll be taken away like refuse when refuse is taken out. God gave him a chance, and they failed. God gave Jeroboam a chance, and they failed. And so what we see next is that Biosha's conspiracy, we've already been introduced to him a little bit, so we're going back and catching up, if you would catch that. We talked about Judah's kingdom, now we're talking about Israel. So God used a man named Baasha to fulfill his word. Look at verse 27. Biosha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha killed him. At Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, where Nadab and all Israel had laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It became because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, and by which he had made Israel sin because of the provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Nadab and his men are down in Gibbethon, which, ironically enough, is in the Gaza Strip. Keeping up with the news Gaza, the place where the Philistines was occupied, uh, was owned by the Philistines. They had besieged this city called Gibbethon. And while they were besieging the city, somehow Baasha is able to come in while he's out of his normal place. And kill him and take the throne. And what he did, once he took the throne, was what most ancient Near Eastern kings did. He destroyed all the family of the king that had just reigned. He went through and destroyed them all. He dethroned him and destroyed them. And all this was done to fulfill God's word, which he had spoken to Jeroboam by warning. He said, you need to follow me. And Jeroboam said, no. And God said, fine, you will be removed from the kingdom. One of the things you'll see in contrast as we continue to study is the kings of Israel changed all the time. Constant family change, bloodshed, and not a single one followed the Lord. Well, the, the children of, of Judah, the sons of Judah, we have the house of David established by God's blessing. All this was done to fulfill God's word because Jeroboam had rejected God. Some final thoughts on his reign in verse 31, the rest of the acts of Nadab. All that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasha all their days. As we conclude, I want to Wrap up your thoughts with this big idea, that that the Lord is the King of kings. And as the King of kings, he has authority to show mercy. He has the authority to, to honor purity. And while as he's the King of kings, he brings testing along our way. And he always keeps his word. He He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. Asa benefited because of the faithfulness of his father David. Abijam benefited because of the faithfulness of his father, David, and you too can leave a blessing of of faithfulness to your children and your grandchildren. You can be faithful today, and it will leave a legacy of faithfulness. God, here's another point, God often does, and He's able to use wicked men pursuing their own ends to fulfill His Word. God God can use wicked men who are doing what they want to do to fulfill his word. You see this with Baasha. Baasha wanted to be king, and so he destroys all of Jeroboam. He doesn't do that because the Lord, he said, oh, well, the Lord told me I had to destroy the house of Jeroboam. No, he's pursuing his own ends, and God uses wicked men often to accomplish his own ends. God is, is big enough to do that. And we see God doing that even with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wicked men pursuing their own ends bring about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through his death we are saved what a wonderful thing that is. But in the end, all kings, all authorities, everything will be removed and Jesus will take their place. Jesus will rule and reign. We see this throughout the Scripture. Daniel chapter 2 predicts this, but I want to turn our attention to Revelation because this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Revelation 19. I'm going to read this and we'll close the prayer. When John sees this image, it speaks of the king of kings and his authority to rule and reign. These kings in the book of 1 Kings seem powerful and were mighty for a time, but God is the ultimate king, and Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Let's read these verses together. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11, he says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We worship that King of Kings today. Father, we ask you today to help us to fully submit to you, the King of Kings. We know there's a lot of political things going on in our world today. We think even right now in our country, we have political people jockeying for positions, doing what they can to get in power, to fulfill their own desires. And God, I pray that you would have mercy on our nation, have mercy on us. But God, I pray that we would never, ever mistake human leaders for the great King of Kings. We would never put our trust in horses and chariots, knowing that you are the one who truly rules and who truly reigns. And so you are the King of Kings, and they will be held accountable. All of our human kings will be held accountable, each one, before the throne of god they will stand before you and answer for what they have done and lord we rest knowing that you are the king who holds kings accountable you show mercy and your word is always true you are faithful always but lord i pray that we would look at our own hearts and as asa was able to look around his life and see the things that were impure in his kingdom and he took charge of these things, and He worked to rid them and make pure His place. I pray, God, that we would do the same with our lives, that we would see the things around us that are impure, and we would desire to walk with You in such a way, we would be willing to sacrifice things that may be be something that's difficult to sacrifice, that we may submit these things fully to You and, and, and be a people who are fully and completely and wholly dedicated to You, that our hearts would be loyal to You even now. We thank you, Lord, for being that great king of kings who we can trust, who we can rest in,